Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to Midrash NYC. Hi, I'm Ben Grace, podcast producer. Today's conversation is between Jen Fisher, Associate Pastor of Forefront Brooklyn, and Christine Moutier, the Chief Medical Officer of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. A quick reminder before we jump into that. Our full midweek series, Faith Culture Questions, is underway. We've had David Bazan at the Bell House. And on Thursday, October 13th, we have Lisa Sharon Harper, author of The Very Good Gospel. For more information and for tickets, please visit forefrontnyc.com fcq. Okay, on to today's podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Moutier, and I'm the Chief Medical Officer at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and we are the leading nonprofit group fighting suicide in our country. We're a national organization, and we fund research, create education, and change policy, and everything from federal to state to local levels when it comes to mental health and suicide prevention. And this has been a busy season for you guys because just last week, right, was September 10th, World Suicide Prevention Day. Right. right? And so will you tell us a little bit about what you guys were doing around um, that event this year? Yeah. Both um, World Suicide Prevention Day and National Suicide Prevention Week, which occur at the same time, are a really neat way that's been happening over the last 15 years or so to raise awareness about one of the leading yet preventable causes of death in our nation. And so um, I think many organizations, community groups, as well as healthcare organizations and schools, I mean, you name it, um, workplaces Mm -hmm. even, will do something um, to highlight the importance of these issues. And so, um, will you tell us a little bit more about, your website is full of great statistics about suicide rates here in New York State especially. Will you tell us a little bit of those statistics and kind of explain to us a little bit, especially for an audience who maybe hasn't been touched by suicide in their lives or um, just any of us who are wanting to be advocates or even those who are struggling with it themselves? Sure. So, some of the important rates and trends that are important to be aware of are that while suicide is considered a preventable cause of death, the rates have been going up over the last 15 or 16 years. They've actually gone up 24%. And what we know is that a national decision to invest um, in in a way that's commensurate with the mortality toll in research and awareness and education, just like happened for heart disease and other forms of cancer, that investment as a country led to decreases in mortality rates across many other health-related leading causes of death. And so that is the idea with suicide, is that even though the rates are going up, that that kind of fuels our fire to um, really advocate even more strongly, advocate for the research that needs to be done to answer the questions of why does it happen and what kinds of activities are effective forms of prevention. Um, But I will just add, since you asked about rates and um, trends, one thing that I think has happened in our country is that because of military and veteran suicide rates going up, which is a terrible tragedy, it did highlight the issue and perhaps started addressing the stigma a bit because 
Um, for anybody who thought that suicide, suicidal thinking, attempts, or taking your own life was an issue for um, weak or cowardly people, that is simply not true. And I think people started understanding that when our toughest mm -hmm. citizens, i.e. soldiers and veterans, um, have, have succumbed to that terrible kind of suffering that drives suicide. So um, another just fact is that Suicide rates have been going up the steepest and are the highest now in our country among middle-aged people. And so, anyway, we can talk about all different types of people, but. Yeah, I was just gonna ask you that. I saw that on your website, that it was middle-aged white men yes. who are successful at attempting suicide. It was, but it was women who were three times more likely to try. And can right. you explain that statistics? Sure, a yeah. A little bit? Mm -hmm. Yes, so, um, Ever since suicide rates have been measured for hundreds of years, this has been the case, that men die by suicide at a rate somewhere between three and four times greater than women. Now, there are cultural differences in other countries, actually, with some of the Asian countries having more equal rates between men and women, but generally, um, there is this gender difference. And um, women do attempt more often than men, that is true. So there's a few things there women gravitate towards the methods that tend to be less lethal and vice versa. Men tend towards firearms and more lethal methods. Mm. That's one of the ways to understand why males' suicide attempts tend to lead to death more often. I see. Um, yeah, one of the other statistics that you guys had was that twi was it twice as many people die by suicide as by homicide in our country? Yes. Or in New York State, at least. Yes, that's and right. And 50% of them were by gunshots. Correct, um, right. So because you guys are an advocacy group especially, is gun policy something that you focus on as well? Yes, we actually have a really exciting um, strategy, I think, when it comes to firearms and suicide prevention. And that is that we have actually decided to stay out of the politics and the Second Amendment issue altogether mm -hmm. and partner with the gun-owning community to prevent suicide from within. And that relates to educating gun owners, retailers, ranges, everyone who's involved with that yeah. shooting sport wow. type of activity, um, who are people who have often struggled with mental health issues themselves or lost loved ones to suicide. They, just like every community, turns out to be very interested in um, what can an average person do if they notice that someone in their family or in their community is in distress. And so the key part with regard to the education and partnering with the gun owning community is simply that because they are gun owners, they have access to a much more lethal means um, of suicide mm -hmm. within their own home. And so we, we partner with them so that there's a, a very strong piece of the education that's about temporary, um, time and space between the person and their firearm or frankly any lethal means just for the period that they're in distress. This is not about permanent removal. Okay. So that is the means and we actually have a national partnership with one of the leading um, firearms organizations. Yeah, that's amazing. So that actually leads us into, we were hoping to have a conversation about um, helping all of us understand that if we have a friend who is, or we ourselves are struggling um, with mental illness or with suicide, 
I think the stigma around it is is one of the things that prevents us from talking about it, from growing from it, being aware of it, and especially in faith communities where it can be a, a really loaded conversation. Um, so I think we were hoping today to kind of debunk some of that stigma. And so maybe you could educate us a little bit. We were having a conversation right before we started about the proper way to talk about it so that we're sensitive of how others might feel. Um, and then, of course, I'm hoping that we could maybe get into like, what are some steps that you can take if you're worried about a loved one um, or yourself. Um, but I was hoping you could maybe tell us a little bit about the stigma and how it affects the people that your organization serves, especially. Sure. Well, if you go back about maybe 10 or 12 years when we started um, something called the Out of the Darkness Walks. And these are community walks to raise awareness and funds for suicide prevention. Um, you know, I think our organization and our leaders at the time weren't sure if anyone would come out. There was the breast cancer walk and other kinds of walks that people were coming out in droves for. And we took a leap of faith and, and started those. And people did come out. And they've been coming out more and more every year to the point that now we have um, close to 400 community walks with about a um, quarter of a million people walking and probably close to a million or more who are donating to those walkers. And um, so there has been a real, I'd say, um, seed change around this issue. And I realize that hasn't necessarily permeated to all people within every community. Most people don't hear about this necessarily or don't know yet. But um, I'll give you another example of how the tide is turning. Uh, oh, what I want to say about that, though, is that people who come to our walks will often say they've never been in a crowd of hundreds of people where the conversation can takes all stigma out of it. So mm -hmm. people immediately connect around the struggles they've had or the loved one they lost to suicide. And, um, you know, there's, there's heartache around all of these issues. So that emotional pain is, of course, very real. But many things in life are painful. And health is health, and mental health is part of that. Mm -hmm. So there's a real freedom that comes when people realize that they're around like-minded people who don't have a sense of stigma or shame about this, who really know the truth, that these are mental health and human issues that anyone can struggle with, frankly. Um, suicidal ideation is extremely common, by the way, with about 17% of the population having suicidal thoughts um, in, in any given period of time. So yeah. these are human issues that people experience. Um, the other piece of evidence I was just gonna give you, though, about how the tide is changing so remarkably there's a couple things actually. Maybe five years ago, there were almost no states within our country who had um, any laws around suicide prevention training for teachers in schools. Mm. And now as part of the advocacy effort that's going on in many segments, but this is just one example, more than half our states now have passed legislative um, policies and laws that mandate teacher training on suicide prevention. So the idea with that obviously, is that anyone who's in a frontline role, mm -hmm. whether it's churches, schools, law enforcement, healthcare systems who are interacting with people a lot more than the average person, yeah. they have eyes on and they can be trained to detect the warning signs and the changes that indicate deterioration in mental health. 
So it's it's a very exciting time. We feel that there is actually a tipping point that is being reached in terms of that stigma being diminished. Um, we, we're seeing it especially in the younger generation. Well, and we have a lot of, of pastors, of clergy, and, and um, faith leaders who listen to this podcast. So is there any particular uh, steps that maybe you could tell them to take to sure. get better equipped to serve their communities in this way? Yes, that's a great Great question. I would say take um, an hour out of your life to get educated about suicide prevention. Um, a pretty simple way to do that is to go to our website, mm -hmm. afsp.org. It's a great website, yeah. We have, um, we've got these resources. One is called Talk Saves Lives, and it's a very easy to digest brochure that basically goes over what the warning signs are, what they look like in someone you love in your life or what they feel like in yourself and then how to have the conversation um, when you are concerned and we can get more into that later perhaps mm -hmm. but you know the key thing there I think from a clergy standpoint is that we, we all have our framework through which we see the world and um, for people who are um, trained and ordained ministers or rabbis um, that that lens is going to be, of course, through a greater emphasis, perhaps, on spirituality. And what I would just say, and this is my way of understanding these issues, is that human beings are physical, um, psychological, spiritual, all of the above. And every dimension of our being can affect the other. Mm -hmm. We're integrated <laughs> individuals, people, um, so that it that when you're sitting with a person who is, let's say, receiving some advising or counseling from you in your faith-based setting, and, and, and I'm sure you all are very experienced with this, of providing comfort and advising and prayer and guidance, um, and that support is incredibly important. That's actually part of preventing suicide, is when people connect to that and feel connected to it, mm -hmm. that saves lives. Um, but the one thing I would say is that since, just like I'm not trained in those areas, not all um, spiritual experts are trained in mental health. And so to be aware that if the person is coming across not like themselves in their behavior, they're thinking the way they talk, they're not sleeping as well, um, there are many really kind of pretty clear and or physical changes that happen when mental health starts to deteriorate. And so, if you picked up on some physical changes in health and the person didn't know that they might want to see their primary care doctor, a pastor might advise them to do that. And mm -hmm. the same thing I think would, would go for mental health, that there may be some blurring of ideas between like counseling, general counseling, and like a mental health professional that knows how to treat clinical depression and anxiety disorder or more severe states that really can put a person at ris risk for suicide. Yeah, that's great. And I know your website is full of resources. Not only can you find a therapist or a mental health professional through yes. your website, but also you guys had programs listed and other ways that um, people can get equipped to be advocates to get involved in not only here in New York City, but wherever you are across the country. Um, you, you guys have chapters everywhere. Yes, basically. we do. We have chapters in all 50 states. And um, for the New York listeners, for your podcast, um, we have some very strong chapters in New York State that love to meet new interested people 
and you can find those chapters on our website as well if you have any interest in finding out what's going on are there are they putting on an event a walk or a talk saves lives education program Mm -hmm. so that's great so let's talk a little bit more about um kind of debunking the stigma right um we talked a little bit about the language that you can use especially if you're talking to one of your friends or just in general i guess to let people know that you're a safe person to speak to um can you can you tell us a little bit about that yeah language that we can be aware of and Yes, I think with some of these changes that I was alluding to about the advocacy going on and just raising of awareness, what's happened is that people from all sides of this have come out and are part of a kind of a national dialogue now going on. And that has led to some realizations about our language that we use. So to give a a really key example, the phrase committed suicide, which is quite embedded in our lexicon from long ago, is now not recommended at all because the term committed suicide it sort of harkens to a time when um, suicide was actually considered a crime, um, a criminal right. act. So it had moral, sort of a shadow of implications about the person's character, uh, morally or spiritually. And um, now there's science that is shedding light on what the risk factors for suicide are, so it really doesn't fit anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and one recent thing that happened actually is that the Associated Press, the AP Stylebook, actually made a comment about how to report on suicide, how to talk about oh, it, and they specifically recommended not using the phrase committed suicide. So yeah. that's one key example. Other examples would be um, for people who have had a history of suicide attempts. And many people now, by the way, with a history of attempt, have come out to talk about that. They're talking about it um, with researchers, with clinicians. We've convened several panels of people with their own attempts. They call themselves people with lived experience of suicide. Um, we've convened panels on the Hill. I'm actually going to go to the White House next week and um, do a couple of more panels like that. So there's great interest in in hearing from the people themselves now, not just the scientists, the clinicians, or the families who are left behind after mm-hmm. they die, but the people who are still living and can yeah. shed light on what that was and what their recovery has been like. So those people with lived experience of suicide Um, strongly prefer that a suicide attempt not be called like a failed attempt or a successful attempt because it it implies a judgment of some sort. And it also doesn't even, they're they're kind of superfluous because an attempt implies Mm -hmm. that they, they are still alive and didn't die. Whereas if the person died, you say they died by suicide or they took their life. Okay. And yeah, and you guys, you do so much work in Washington and, and going to be advocates and working with um, policymakers, I did notice just a couple of weeks ago that Hillary Clinton came out with a, a platform, I guess, on yes. mental health care and included a section on, on suicide prevention as well. So that must be part of the trend that you're talking about. And um, I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about like what it was that she stated and how you guys feel about that and what you wish to see our government doing or or in lieu of our government doing anything, what faith communities or communities in general can do to step up and fill that gap? You know, so kind of along those lines that I was mentioning earlier, because suicide is still a leading cause of death, it's the 10th leading cause in general, it's the second leading cause of death for young people, teens and young adults. Um, it, it really warrants a 
a national priority on mm -hmm. mental health and suicide prevention. And, um, you know, the mental health platform that was recently put forward by one of the candidates uh, really does that very strongly. It was a very well thought out. Um, I think there were some great advisors involved there because everything there is state of the art according to science. So it's about early detection of mental health in children and teens, um, but it, of course uh, throughout the whole the whole life cycle, and um, it's about getting any of those frontline citizens trained on suicide prevention. It's about getting healthcare providers trained because sadly. Um, we do always recommend that people who are at risk for suicide enter into treatment or and, and with the healthcare system, but many healthcare providers are not trained on suicide prevention yet. Mm. So there's a lot of changes that are gonna happen, but we well, need to yeah. make it a priority on a national level. So I would just say, you know, for a church um, or a faith-based organization, I would say, you know, if you think about how you value your people, um, and and if you if you start to think about how not only their spiritual health, their physical health, but also their mental health, all actually impacts what's happening in in maybe even the, the more communal um, spiritual and social health of the of the group. It's really it's not only critically important because it affects an individual's functioning and their perceptions so profoundly when they're not mentally healthy, but when it's not spoken of at all and it's an absence in the dialogue in a faith-based community, mm -hmm. I think it makes it so that it's sort of implied that that's not a language we speak here. And so it's not a need that we can really address here. And so I, I know that that's probably not the intention, um, mm -hmm. the intent of that it's probably more because people don't know what to say. Mm -hmm. But I've noticed that when clergy just sprinkle even like some of their public messages, their sermons with, um, with a mention of mental health as part of their message or part of the story they're telling, it just opens up, it tells the congregation, they get it. Yeah. They're tuned into that that's a real part of my life or my family's experience. And, and can, again, open up a dialogue that allows them mm. then to come forward and connect and reach out when they are in distress. And I know that we have so many people, so many friends even, um, who struggle with depression and anxiety, especially here in the city where New York is such a difficult place to live um, and who can so easily feel isolated. Um, so I appreciate that you saying just simply for us to just sprinkle it into our, our conversations is almost enough to just get the conversation going, yes, right? Yes. Um, what would put someone at ease if I did want to approach them and have a conversation about suicide prevention um, as an advocate or a friend? Um, how could I go about having that conversation with someone? Well, let's let's talk about a couple different scenarios because that is a wonderful question and it really relates to all of us and, and something that all of us probably can and should do. So one thing you can do is use your social media platforms to post about the things you care about. And you don't even have to have the language. You can find something that we've posted um, by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and just retweet it or repost it. Um, and that tells all of your people 
that you're a safe person, that you're you're not only not judging it, you are um, on the enlightened side of being a caring, compassionate, educated individual about it. So, I mean, that's just a simple thing, but I think that is a powerful thing that's happening, obviously, a lot these days um, in our social media communication format. But the here's a really important thing. If you notice that someone in your life doesn't seem themselves, and it could be that you notice that they're drinking more or they're losing their temper more, they don't, something just tweaks your radar and says they just don't seem themselves. Mm-hmm. I would say trust your gut instinct, number one, because changes in mental health are, are very profound on the inside, but here's the problem, because of stigma, we all hide it and we keep going about our day-to-day life and and won't talk about it if we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think, you know, the, here's the hard part, even the most educated people about this, when they get distressed, it's hard to reach out. So we have to try extra hard to reach out to them and let them know that it's out of love and care that we're even approaching them in concern. And so what I would say is trust your gut instinct, learn about the warning signs though, um, they're, they're pretty graspable. Um, and again, they're not just sad and blue, the person could seem agitated and more angry, um, mm. things like that. And then if you approach them and say, I would really like to um, talk to you soon, and, and ideally set up a time so that they're, you're not like having this abrupt hallway conversation, but you're sitting down with them over coffee or whatever, and and you've set aside that time with them. And, you, and you're direct. You start right in and you say, I really wanted to speak with you because I care, and you haven't seemed yourself in these ways, X, Y, and Z, whatever it is. I notice you've been drinking more. I notice that you, um, you've been coming into our meetings um, just not seeming yourself, kind of in a, in a fluster. Um, and it's probably going to be more than that if it's mm-hmm. really tweaked your radar of concern. But um, you know, be direct. Don't don't make them wonder what is this all about because they're already probably starting to get a little bit freaked out. Like, what's this conversation about? And then you just are going to say, "I really want to just check in with you and see how you're doing. What's on your mind?" And then you listen to them, mm-hmm. and you really try to um, allow them to open up and tell you their perspective. And, and, and here's the thing, their perspective is gonna be full of their life factors of what's been going on. Mm-hmm. But you're also now attuned to how it's impacting them. Um, there's always gonna be stressors going on in all of our lives, let's face it, we don't catch a break that often any, anymore. Um, but we, your person you're talking to probably tends mm-hmm. to manage those things pretty well normally. And now something is, is overwhelming them or seeming different. And, and if it is, then you follow up and you ask more about that. You seem more overwhelmed than usual. Do you, does it get to the point that you actually feel um, so overwhelmed or so hopeless? And here's where, I, if, if, you, if it seems appropriate, introduce the question about suicidal thoughts directly. And I would say, does it ever get so bad that you think about ending your life? And I would just ask it just like that. You won't be planting the seed. You do not do harm. Research was really clear about that. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And and then um, based on what they tell you, you may need to actually lead them to help or or just encourage them and say, you know, there's been a, there was a time in my life when I needed to see a therapist and it helped me a lot. Um, 
give them permission to do that. Tell them you'd think more highly of them if they seek that kind of mental health professional help at that point. I think what you said there about how the research shows you won't be planting a seed, you won't be putting that idea in their head. I think that probably is one of the things that people get afraid to bring it up because it's such a loaded question to begin with. And then to ask that is like, you're making assumptions about them, you're you're going into that darker place. And I just imagine that that's one of the things that we fear that holds us back from having that conversation. It is, right. Yeah. And we don't have, we're not trained about these things generally. Yeah. And we don't, it, but if you realize that, let's say upwards of 15 to 20% of the people around you have suicidal thoughts, yeah, you know, or have recently, this is something that we're all keeping inside then mm-hmm. when it does happen. And what the research shows is that people actually feel a sense of relief to talk about it. So you have to ask the question in a way that's non-judgmental. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, just just straightforward. Does it? Do you ever think about taking your life? And I think it's important, you know, not everyone who has mental health issues thinks about suicide. That's right. And not everyone who thinks about suicide has a mental health issue. It can right. be caused by, you know, death or a breakup or long-term unemployment. Um, and especially with all the changes that have happened in our country in the last... 10 years or so, like I definitely have seen within our community of friends how how strongly unemployment can affect you. Absolutely. And um, so, yeah, I think it, it is, it's a really important conversation for us to have that it's, it's not just severe mental health issues that cause suicidal thoughts. It can be overwhelming life issues of any kind. Right. Um, I will tell you, though, when it comes to people who actually take their life, mm-hmm. you're right about that. Suicidal thoughts are much more common. Attempts are less common. And death by suicide is even less common, of course, thankfully. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes to what the research shows about that group of people who have died by suicide, it research is pretty clear about the fact that it's several things that converge and pile up at one moment in time. And mm. almost always, in greater than 90% of the research type of, of investigation, there has been a clear mental health, a diagnosable mental health condition that contributes to their suicide. And oftentimes, here's the, here's the part that we think where prevention can work a little better is that oftentimes it was never even addressed or diagnosed. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of step one, I think, is raising awareness around like mental illness, mental health conditions are really commonplace. They're not just the person with severe mental illness who becomes disabled or, um, you know, is housebound or homeless. Mm -hmm. Certainly those, those can be end results, but Many, many people in our workplaces, in our schools, have depression, anxiety, mm-hmm. um, substance use problems, and and those sorts of things. So um, that's partly why it's it's so important to take the stigma out of them. Yeah, because we need to understand that mental health is a spectrum and it's a part of health, just like we all have aspects to our health. Right. There's just nothing, you know, where we can do better is is if we treat it just like health. You know, if we knew that we had a strong family history of heart disease, let's mm-hmm. say you had several relatives who had died by a heart attack at a young age, you might take that information to say, okay, now I'm turning whatever, 25, I'm going to see a doctor. I'm going to start taking care of my cardiovascular health, which might mean 
looking at your diet, your exercise, your stress management, even the health of your relationships, because all those things impact cardiovascular health. Um, so the same kind type of approach can be used for mental health. And I think that, am I right in assuming that one of the reasons we struggle with this is because we don't talk about depression and anxiety as being an actual mental illness or mental health issue, um, that too often we think, I'm just sad, or depression yeah. is not as big a deal as right. it really is. It is. It's it's confusing, because on the one hand, we want to take the stigma out of it, yeah. but on the other hand, if we normalize it to equate to the everyday ups and downs and worries that those are not yeah. the same as clinical depression or an anxiety disorder right. clearly so we on the one hand um i think it's all about education actually mm -hmm. and just helping people to understand that um i mean here's the reality with anxiety disorders many people with what's called generalized anxiety disorder which is the tendency to worry a lot and to mm -hmm. overthink and it's constantly and and the person with generalized anxiety disorder really thinks it's because the world is worth worrying about that much so it's very it, we call it egocentric it fits their framework so they they do not go and see a doctor about that because they really think my life is just that worrisome so so it's a it's kind of a double edged sort yeah. about the the issue of like you know oh i'm depressed i'm sad and blue yeah that's that's not clinical depression when depression right. comes on it takes different forms but it i think some people think it's like from from the neck up and really sad and blue and um, crying and full of angst. For some people, they just can't get out of bed. Some people lose their appetite, their sex drive, their energy. It's a very physical, whole body experience. Their concentration is affected, memory. Um, so I guess that's the part that can be dismissive to a person who has experienced clinical depression. If people are talking about depression like those little ups and downs in their mood during the day. Yeah. Um, how long have you worked for the organization? I joined the staff of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention three years ago, and I had been on the faculty at University of California, San Diego School of Medicine for 15 plus years before that, and about mm -hmm. 10 of those years in the role of assistant dean for student affairs and medical education in the med school. So I was doing a lot of advising, teaching, mentoring, but one of my um, strong interests there was in the mental health of our students and my colleagues, my physician colleagues. And that came about in part related to a loss to suicide that I experienced um, when I was a, it was my internship actually, so my first year out of med school um, during my residency, uh, a medical student I had worked with on a rotation took his life. Um, in his fourth year of medical school. And that really rocked my world because I had worked with him not too long before, and that means spending hours and hours you know, of the day and all week for several weeks in a row, um, and had gotten to know him pretty well. And I, so I had that experience like many people who lose a loved one to suicide, which um, this was a, obviously a more distant relationship, not a loved one, but um, of, of having that sort of shock kind of smack you in the face of mm -hmm. how on earth is that possible? And I just saw him and how did I not sense 
that this was coming because it's just sort of inconceivable to to think that the person had been suffering um, or planning their death and all of that sort of hidden from view. Hmm. Um, and then what happened for me personally is that as I went through my training in psychiatry and then on the faculty and got to know more and more of the physicians around me, and, and really because of what I was doing and interested in, I became somebody who a lot of people spoke to about the issues they were struggling with. And so you kind of got the inside story in a way of what people are really experiencing. And then you see them on the wards and you see that they're, you know, this mm -hmm. famous surgeon, this leader, you know, and you realize that people are so much more nuanced and multidimensional and 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 also of course as a society that we we don't do ourselves a service it, it's of course great to keep functioning even when you're in distress that's that serves us well to a point and then there's a point of actually danger and diminishing return where we are hiding very serious um you know levels of distress and and suicide risk so that um that spurred a group of us on at UCSD to start a program that is still going strong, that educates all of the physicians and trainees, and um, now is being um, inclusive of um, the nursing staff in the hospital, pharmacy students were also included, all about mental health, our own mental health, and how we can be better healthcare providers if we are healthy, mentally healthy. And um, we paired that education part of the program with something called the Interactive Screening Program that happens to be a program created by AFSP, where I now work, but at the time I didn't. Um, we found it because it's such a special tool and allows people to anonymously link up with help and eventually be, be referred into treatment if they need it. Um, so um, so my, my path and my interest in suicide prevention really came from kind of a 360 degree view of experiencing my own students, colleagues, my own mental health, my family, my community members. It, you know, mental health and suicide risk is actually all around us. If you know what to look for and people start telling you the, the honest truth of what's mm. happening. Um, and so um, when I, came to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, it was, a, it was a big shift, but really it was a shift from medical education and suicide prevention in physicians to now um, on, a, on a nationwide level, which is an awesome privilege yeah. and honor. And so you're helping to organize events, to promote advocacy, to work with policy changes. What's your specific role here like, in your day-to-day? Um, work. Right. So as the chief medical officer, I get to be involved with a whole lot. <laughs> we fund research and we have a very um, solid peer-reviewed grants review process that's run just like the National Institutes of Health. And so um, that's part of what I oversee. Our education programs, things that we create for schools, um, law enforcement, general community education. Though that all comes, all of it, yeah. mm -hmm. and then um, we have a specific policy and advocacy department in Washington D.C., 
And then, um, so I, I help them because everything our organization does is evidence-based. And I, and I will just say that are probably like around any issue where people become very passionate, it, it can be easy to, to grasp at the first and easiest thing to do, but that might not be effective. That might not be evidence-based in terms mm -hmm. of um, the impact that it will have. So that's how we, that's how we base our work. And, and I'll just add that the, the last really important piece of our work at AFSP is that it's always been through real communities in the grassroots of our country. Mm -hmm. our, our foundation started about 30 years ago because people who had lost loved ones and had their own lived experience came together with scientists and decided that this needs some attention. Um, so that kind of merging of grassroots and science is really what produces all of this research, education, and policy efforts. Well, and in that way, I want to highlight some of the events that you guys have coming up that are just that, happening at the grassroots level, where people who are listening today can get involved not only here in New York City, but even around the country, because there are some national events coming up. Um, will you tell us a little bit more about those yes. this fall. Yeah, in the fall of 2016 that we're coming into now, there are uh, about 400 community walks going on in all 50 states. There are dozens going on in New York State. There's one in each borough for New York City. Yeah, I saw that, yeah. And um, yeah, they're really, if you're just interested to kind of dip your toe in the water and see what this is all about, I would just say, just come to a walk. There's no fundraising minimum for our community walks. So you can just sign up and come and walk or hang out, observe. But it is a powerful experience because as I was mentioning before, there's just not a lot of places where there's that sense of passion and mission around suicide prevention with the stigma not only wiped out, but kind of like a, a very fighting force to raise awareness. It's it's really it's really empowering, I think very freeing for people to experience sure, it. Yes. Yeah. And then I also saw on November 19th, I think that was Survivor's Day. Yes. Can you tell me yes. more about that? Thank you for asking about that. That's a really cool thing too. Once a year, um, every year on the Saturday before Thanksgiving, mm. this is a day that was designated by Senator Harry Reid who lost his father to suicide. Um, we put on Survivor Day programs, and they're, they've now gone international as well. There are about 300 that happen in the U.S. and in about 18 countries outside the U.S. So that is November 19th, and you can go to our website, afsp.org, and um, look up Survivor Day mm -hmm. to find an event near you. This is usually, um, this reaches people who are either recently bereaved to a suicide loss or who lost someone maybe in the distant past, but they hadn't really yet started delving into what that's all about. And let me tell you, um, you know, the experience of suicide loss is, is an extremely profound type of experience. And the way that our, our folks who, who um, lead us in, in our loss and healing area tell us is the most powerful way is, of course, learning about suicide, maybe getting involved in suicide prevention, but even most importantly, connecting with other lost survivors. Extremely powerful. Mm. That sounds like a really intentional day too, right before Thanksgiving, yes. right before the holiday season where times can get even tougher for people. That's right. Um, yeah, that's really great. And another great way for us to open up the conversation, I think, right before the holiday season. Um, so finally, I just, well, first of all, thank you for taking time to sit down with us today and to share 
all of your life experience and, and knowledge and research with us. You're so welcome. Um, as we finish out today, I just want us to close with just a few words for um, anyone who's listening to this podcast who's struggling themselves with suicidal thoughts. Uh, what resources are available? What words you want to share with them to give them hope? Great. Yeah, I, I would just tell you that you are not alone, first and foremost. Um, what you're experiencing is part of the human challenge here on Earth that many, many people struggle with. And I hope you will find somebody safe in your life to connect with and, and reach out and talk um, to someone that might sound like a really risky thing to do, but there are safe people. Um, maybe you can start within your faith-based community, but certainly if you're um, not feeling safe with yourself right now, I would really urge you to call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Again, that's 1-800-273-TALK. Um, and I, again, I, I, what I would say is your struggles, are, are they feel really unique to you. You may feel full of shame about them, um, but to understand that there's this whole community of people who are now actually sharing about these experiences and feeling empowered about the ways that they've found um, a way through them. And in some cases, have even found a sense of meaning and purpose far beyond um, what they had before. So your, your situation, while it may feel extremely intense, is um, it will pass and um, there will be a way through this. And I would just urge you to hold on to that hope. You've, you've been a resilient person through many, many challenges in life because we all face those. And um, I hope you can find that in yourself right now. And if you can't, again, please reach out for help. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in today. Please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to visit forefrontnyc.com FCQ for more information and to get your tickets to Lisa Sharon Harper. Sound engineering and music provided by The Astrolab. Organize your digital life at theastrolab.com. We'll see you next week.